This morning we get to turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7, verses 20 through 28. If you want to turn there. Hebrews 7, 20 through 28. I was reminded of one of my personal deficiencies this week. This week I had to call a contractor and ask for service, which isn't a big deal. Uh, I can handle that. But I had to ask for prompt service, and that was the problem. I had to ask for prompt service. And for some reason, I I actually have a bad track record here. Uh, When I tell people I need things quickly, it usually doesn't make a difference. I, I don't know if I sound too nice on the phone. I don't know if I don't sound serious enough. I don't, it's, 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 it, seems, it's, it seems like over the phone is where this typically happens. Uh, just as an example, a few years ago, last spring, we were having some issues with these AC units, and they were kind of working, but kind of not. And uh, so Monday morning right away, I called the contractor who installed them and said we were having some issues, and we hadn't had them serviced, and I asked if they could send someone over to look at them, figuring, calling Monday morning, hopefully they'd be here you know, before the next Sunday, we'd be good to go. And I was told that they would put us on the list. You know, the list. And a week went by, and another week went by, and another week went by, and so I called again and asked for an update and wanted to make sure we were still on the list. And I was assured, yes, you are. Uh, we just we haven't gotten to you yet, so okay, fair enough. Uh, they're kind of working. And another week went by, and another week went by, and another week. And we're into like late July at this point, and so I called again, and I asked, "Are we? we I have you know, are we still on the list? Yes, we're still on the list. It's just there's other people who." are higher priorities. They're, they're, they're in greater need than, than you are. So we, we haven't gotten to you yet. We're, well, we'll get there when we can. It wasn't even like a promise of a date yet. And it was like the next day I was talking to Linda from St. Mark's and explaining, you know, we, yeah, we've, we've asked them to come. And she says, you know what? I'm going to give them a call. The next morning, First thing, guess who's here working on the AC units? And this is not the only time this has happened to me. It's amazing what happens when a third party comes in and assists a problem between two people. This morning we're looking at a third party who steps in and makes something happen between Two others. Look at Hebrews 7, starting at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that through your perfect and infallible word this morning, we would be comforted, that we would be stimulated to take action, and that we would be further equipped to rejoice in you and who you are for us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're picking up where uh, I left off back in August in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, in, in Hebrews 7 here, the author of Hebrews is discussing why Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. And he begins in chapter 7 here distinguishing the priesthood of Levi, Levitical priesthood, with the priesthood of Melchizedek. We know very little about Melchizedek's priesthood. We only get three verses about him in Genesis chapter 14. We do know that he's an odd priest because he's both a priest and a king at the same time. We know much more about the Levitical priesthood. We have a whole Old Testament book that's devoted to telling us about the Levitical priesthood and the duties of the Levites and Aaron and his descendants who would serve as priests after him. Hebrews 7 is showing us that the priesthood of Melchizedek, this priest king, though it's mysterious, it's superior to the Levitical priesthood, which stems from Aaron. And you'll remember that Aaron is Moses' brother. So as we continued through chapter 7 in August, we began to look at some of the ways that Jesus' priesthood, resembling the Melchizedekian priesthood, is far superior to the one that we find in the Old Testament. In August, we focused on verses 11 through 19 and two of the reasons why Jesus' priesthood is superior. The first reason was that uh, he has, this is, his priesthood has a different qualification. Jesus is qualified on the basis of his indestructible life. Verse 16. Secondly, we saw that Jesus' priesthood is different because it has a different outcome. The different outcome of Jesus' priesthood is that it gives a better hope, if you look at verse 19, a better hope through which we draw near to God. And moving forward this morning, we continue to the end of chapter 7. This morning we see seven more ways that Jesus' priesthood is superior. Seven more ways. So we looked at two in August, we'll look at seven this morning, and then we'll conclude uh, with seven implications of Jesus' superior priesthood. So we're going to move pretty quickly this morning. So stay, stay with me. At the end of the day, what I hope you take away from Hebrews 7 this morning is the importance of having a high priest. We don't talk about priests very often. We don't even talk about this, uh, this aspect of Jesus' ministry and role in our lives very much. I want you, if you take away nothing else, to see the importance of Christ 
as a high priest. Understanding this will give us more comfort than we would have otherwise. It will help us, it will spur us on to take action, action towards obedience more boldly and confidently than we would otherwise. And it will also equip us to rejoice and worship God more than we would otherwise. So let's look together first this morning in verse 20. We find the next reason that Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. First, it is a priesthood of a different appointment. It's a priesthood of a different appointment. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In these verses, the author is reflecting on Psalm 110. He referenced Psalm 110 above in verse 17 in his discussion of Melchizedek. That's the one other place Melchizedek's mentioned in the Old Testament is Psalm 110. And if you remember, Psalm 110 is a psalm written by David about the future Davidic king, the future king to come in David's line. And what he says is this would be a priest king that would resemble Melchizedek. Resemble Melchizedek from Genesis 14. So this is a strange king that David prophesies because like Melchizedek, he's both a king and a priest. And then here in verse 21, the author draws attention to the appointment of Jesus as high priest. That's discussed in Psalm 110. We're reminded that all priests are appointed. The author of Hebrews has already told us that all priests, if you're going to be a priest, you have to be appointed to that position. So in Hebrews 5, 1, it says, every high priest chosen from among, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And then in verse 4, it says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed. And you can read all about the appointment of the Levitical priests in Exodus 28 and 29, and it comes up again in chapter 39 of Exodus, and of course you have the whole book of Leviticus as well. However, the appointment of this priest king, the appointment of Jesus, which is discussed, which is prophesied in Psalm 110, it was accompanied with an oath. It comes with an oath. God swears in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever. Now, it's not as though the Levitical priesthood was bad, but it does not have the permanence and significance that this priesthood has described in Psalm 110, does it? The author of Hebrews is drawing attention to Psalm 110, which said to every single Israelite who read it, remember, this is coming uh, 700, no, 1,000 years before Christ. Remember, every Israelite would read Psalm 110. It would tell them, look for the king to come who will defeat his enemies and also serve as a priest. Look for the one to whom God says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever. That priest will be greater than all Levitical priests. None of them were appointed by an oath, which leads to the next thing that makes the priesthood of Christ superior. Second, his priesthood has a different number. It has a different number. How many Levitical priests were there? How many qualified male descendants did Aaron have? If somehow you could get all the Levitical priests together that served from 1446 B.C. to 33 A.D., 
between the Exodus and Christ, if you get them all together for a convention or reunion or something, how big of a venue would you need to get them all together? A decent-sized venue. We see in verse 23 that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The reason there were so many is because they kept dying. Aaron served until he died, and he was replaced by his sons, and they saved until they they died, and then they were replaced by their sons, and they were replaced by their sons, and on and on and on. The real question here, the real question to think about in terms of number of priests is how many Levitical priests does it take to make one person perfect? How many Levitical priests does it take to make one person complete? The answer is, an infinite number of Levitical priests, which is why we read in verse 11, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? So there were many Levitical priests. It would take an infinite number of Levitical priests to carry out all their duties, to fulfill what they were appointed to do. But Christ's priesthood has a different number. How many priests in the priesthood of Christ does it take to make one person Perfect. Just one. Just one. And why does it take only one? Well, that leads to the third aspect that makes Christ's priesthood superior. It's a priesthood of a different term. Christ's priesthood has a different term. How long did the term of a Levitical priest last? It lasted until death. We've seen that. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 23. How long is Jesus' term? As priest, verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In the case of Jesus Christ, death has not prevented him from continuing in office. And thus he continues, his priesthood just continues today. It continues right now. Right now, this moment, it continues, which has a number of implications that we'll consider in in just a bit. But but Jesus' priesthood is superior because it can never be disrupted. It will not be disrupted by natural events. It will not be disrupted by an insurrection or a coup. It won't be disrupted by retirement. It won't be disrupted by someone surpassing him, someone who turns out to be more qualified for the job. It won't be disrupted by a midterm election. It won't be disrupted even by death. Christ's term as priest continues forever, even right now, as we sit here this morning. And this is tied to the next reason the author of Hebrews wants us to see why Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Fourth, this is a priesthood of a different quality. A priesthood of a different quality. We'll spend just a little bit longer here. We just saw the, the, the failures of the Levitical priesthood, considering its number. They were many in number because they kept dying. And a further implication was that it would take an infinite number of them to make someone perfect. In other words, the Levitical priesthood wasn't able to save anyone because an infinite, there's no way to have an infinite number of Levitical priests. So they, the Levitical priesthood could save no one. So it was incomplete. It wasn't necessarily bad, it wasn't poorly designed, but it couldn't deliver the product that it was designed, that it was appointed to uh, to carry out. So this left every single fallen human being imperfect. 
It left every single fallen human being incomplete and still separated from God. But Christ's term, Christ's term, which is based on his indestructible life, enables him to do something that no Levitical priest could ever do. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is really the heart of this section, of this, this passage. Uh, the Puritan John Bunyan, who wrote this, the, the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a whole book on this one verse. Just three things for us to know this morning. First of all, he is able to save to the uttermost. To the uttermost. Whatever kind of salvation Christ delivers, it is a complete salvation. It is salvation to the uttermost. And think what a contrast. How does that contrast with the Levitical priesthood? Levitical priesthood, according to the author of Hebrews in verse 18, it's weak and useless. It's associated with the law. It's associated with that former commandment. It's weak and and useless, but Christ is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely. In other words, there is nothing left unfinished when Christ is finished with you. And we'll see why in a second. But second, he is able to save who? He's able to save, in verse 25, those who draw near to God through him. Our access to God is still mediated by a priest. We haven't gotten rid of the whole concept of a priest in the New Testament and in the New Covenant. But this priest is the God-man. In Christianity, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, one of the ways that salvation is, is described is described as being near God. Being near to God. At the end of the day, salvation is not golf for eternity. It's not food for eternity or sex for eternity or sleep for eternity or vacation for eternity. Heaven is not all my favorite things for eternity. At the end of the day, salvation is being reinstated. It's being reinstated to being in the presence of God. Psalm 73:27 says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. Psalm 1611 says, In His presence, there is fullness of joy. So we draw near to God through Christ our High Priest. And just as a side note, this is, this, this is one of the things that makes our salvation a Trinitarian salvation. We come to the Father through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In, order, in other words, we come to God through God by the power of God. He is able to save those who draw near to God through Him. Through Him. Third, why is he able to save these? Why is he able to save those who draw near to God through him, to the uttermost? He is able since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to do so since he always lives to make intercession for them. We know what Jesus did. At least we better know what Jesus did, right? Jesus lived the life that we have failed to live. He lived a life without sin, without sin spot or blemish. 
Jesus then willingly went to the cross and endured the eternal punishment for sin we deserve. He died and rose again so that now anyone, anyone who turns away from sin and puts their hope in Christ is forgiven. His perfect righteousness is given to you. Your infinitely offensive sin is put on Him. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange or the sweet exchange. Your sin for His righteousness. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And if that's it, that's all you understand about Christ's work for you, you're missing the other half. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? He died, he rose, he lives, and he ascended so that now, today, right now, this morning, Jesus lives to make intercession for you, believer. What is what is intercession? What does that what does that even mean? Intercession is 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 uh, is a word we use for a particular kind of prayer. Um, the way John Bunyan put it, it's the kind of prayer that's made by a third person when there's concern between two others that would either uh, drive those two apart or bring them closer together. So then intercession in this case is what Christ does, what Christ prays for us in order that we might be brought closer to God. That is what Christ lives to do right now. His part of salvation is, is not finished That's not what he means when he says it is finished on the cross. He's not done at that point. He's done with act one, and now he's into act two for our salvation. He lives forever to make intercession for us. When you're forgiven of your sins, right now, we're we're forgiven of our, our sins, but we continue to sin. We are not perfect. We are not complete right now. So his role in heaven right now on our behalf is very important. Christ does not only save partially, he saves completely, right? He says he saves to the uttermost, it says. He saved those, he saves those who draw near to God through him, and he does so not only because of what he has done, he does so because of what he is currently doing. No wonder the title that John Bunyan chose for that book was Christ, a complete Savior. He is a complete Savior. The priesthood of Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood because it is, it has a different quality. It is complete. It is perfect. Next, we turn to the fifth idea of why Christ's priesthood is different. Christ's priesthood has a different residence. There's a few important things to notice here in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 starts with this list of characteristics of Christ. If you look at verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Right now I want to draw attention to that last thing in the list. He's exalted above the heavens. We're going to look more in depth at this in chapter 8, but for our purposes this morning, just take note that this is something that could never be said of any Levitical priest. The author of Hebrews draws attention to this multiple times throughout the letter, so let's not miss this fact. Christ our priest has a significantly superior residence. He does not serve on earth. He serves in heaven. 
in the very presence of God. But that's not the only thing that we find that's superior about Christ's priesthood here in verses 26 and 27. We also see that it has a different efficacy. Sorry, sixth, it has a different efficacy. We might say it has a greater effectiveness or a greater potency. First, we, So we have this list of characteristics here in verse 26. He's holy, innocent, unstained. Clearly, these are characteristics that are congruent with uh, the requirements for Levitical priests in the, in the Old Testament. The whole book of Leviticus is about holiness. No one had higher standards of holiness and innocence and purity in Israel than the Levitical priests had. And yet Christ surpasses them in all these areas. He surpasses them in all these areas. What's it mean that he's separated from sinners? Separated from sinners. In what sense is Jesus separated from sinners? He's not separated us from us in, according to his nature. Right? He is fully human. It's, it, that's not what it means in terms of separated from sinners. It's, it doesn't mean just in regard to his earthly life. Right? Jesus wasn't a hermit in the desert. He lived his life, human life with other people. He even touched unclean people. He was separated from sinners, in the words of John Owen, in his state and condition. He was separated from sin in its nature causes and effects. So Christ is like us in every single possible way, except in the one way he is separate from us in regard to sin. That is how he is separate from us. And that is what a priest had to be. That is what the Levitical priest never quite attained. And as a result, he is a high priest who is fit to us. He is fit to us. If you look at the beginning of verse 26, the way it reads in the ESV, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The, the original words are even more direct here. For also a high priest such as this, as this was fitting to us, is what it says. He's fit to us. He is suitable for us. He is suitable and fit to serve as our high priest, much more than the Levitical priesthood. Why? Look at verse 27. Because he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Levitical priests, they offer sacrifices daily, day after day, year after year, generation after generation. It was always a bull or a ram or a sheep or a lamb without blemish. Right, have you read through Leviticus again and again and again? Without blemish, without blemish, without blemish. And then on the Day of Atonement, that day that would come once a year, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, the only day you're allowed to go in there. First, he has to go in there to make a, he makes a sacrifice and he goes in with blood for his own sins. Then he comes back out and then he takes more blood in to make atonement for the people. So you imagine watching this as an Israelite. Imagine watching this. The guy who goes in to make it so that you can be right with God, he isn't even right with God. Imagine you make an appointment with your accountant for taxes in March. You walk, you walk into his office, and as he's walking in, two guys in suits are walking out. 
So you say to your accountant, who, who are those guys? And your accountant says, oh, those guys are with the IRS. With the IRS? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm being audited. You're being audited? He goes, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. This happens every year. This happens every year. Don't, once I'm done with them, I'll get, I'll get on with your, your taxes. Right? It's time to get a new accountant if that's, if that's the case. Right? At the end of the day, the Levitical priests were not separated from sin. They had sin themselves. It, it's, it's, it's clearly problematic when the person who is going to make you right with God is not right with God himself. Levitical priests are making sacrifices day after day, and they are just as guilty and unclean at the end of the day as the people for whom they minister. This is distinguished from Christ's priesthood. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily. He has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. When Christ offered a sacrifice, he didn't offer an animal. He didn't offer a bull or a ram or a sheep or a lamb. He offered himself. And because he was separated from sinners, that is separated from sin, his offering was without blemish. And this offering was unlike any offering ever made. This offering was far more potent, far more effective. It had far greater efficacy. How does this, how does verse 27 describe this, this offering? Three of the most glorious words in the New Testament. Once for all. Once for all. It's actually only one word in the original. So it's the great, it's a great one word in the Bible. Once for all. Gone are the days of endless sacrifices. Gone are the days of endless flowing blood. Gone are the days of continually looking for a lamb without blemish. Jesus' priesthood has far greater efficacy. It only took one sacrifice once for all. Which leads us to verse 28 and the final thing in this list that makes Christhood greater than the Levitical priesthood, this priesthood has a different origin. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So once again, we have this contrast. Levitical priesthood in Christ. The, the, the Levitical priests were appointed by the law given at Mount Sinai. We read about starting in Exodus 19. The law is described here in Hebrews 7 and verse 18 as weak and useless. It perfected no one. It perfected nothing. The Levitical priests provided very little hope. The Levitical priests were appointed on the basis of a legal requirement. There was no oath that came from God that said they would continue forever. Levitical priests needed to be many in number. It took many. In one sense, it would have taken an infinite Number, the Levitical priests served for a limited term because they kept dying. They were unable to complete or perfect even one single person after centuries. They were limited to serving on earth 
in, in shadows of the temple to come. They had to offer repeated sacrifices for their own sins and then as well for the others. In other words, the Levitical priesthood, it was weak. It was weak. And verse 28 says, The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the priesthood of Christ is not appointed by the law. The priesthood of Christ is not appointed by the law. Verse 28 says the priesthood, or it says the priesthood is appointed by law. The priesthood of Christ, though, actually resembles something much greater and older than the law. It resembles something going back to Melchizedek in verse 14. Melchizedek comes before the law, right? So, so his Christ's priesthood resembles something that's both older than the law, but then it also is, 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 it's, it's, it's promised in something that comes after the law. 500 years after the law, Psalm 1, or 110 is written, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever. So verse 28 here brings up this, this word of oath, this word of the oath, which is referring back to verses 20 and 21. What does this oath from Psalm 110 I'm sorry, who does this oath from Psalm 110 appoint? Who does it appoint? We, we would expect here, we would expect it to say a priest, wouldn't we? We'd expect it to read, for the law appoints men in their weakness to serve as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than law, appoints a priest who has been made perfect forever. That would make sense with his argument, Right? But the author of Hebrews doesn't say priest. He, he is doing something. He's doing important Old Testament interpretation for us. Back in Hebrews 5 already, where he references Psalm 110 also, in, in Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews connects Psalm 110 with Psalm 2. He connects Psalm 110 with Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, God says to the Davidic king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that, back here in verse 28 of Hebrews 7, we read the word of the oath, and when we think the word of the oath, there in verse 28, the word of the oath, well, that's, that's the word that, was, that came in Psalm 110, which never explicitly, Psalm 110 never explicitly mentions a son. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Two things to know. First, at the end of the day, we are not saved by merely some king or some priest or some prophet or any politician or health official or scientist for that matter. At the end of the day, we are saved by God's Son. We are saved by God's Son who is prophet, priest, and king in the fullest sense of what those offices are. And this is part of the overall message of Hebrews. We're drawn back to the opening words of Hebrews again and again and again. Hebrews opens with long ago, long ago in the past, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. After making purification for sins, that's a priestly job, right? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Second, he sits down because his sacrifice is perfect. 
and, 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 and he has been perfected. Verse 28 says, he has been made perfect forever. Now this is not in accord, this is not talking about his divine nature. God the Son has always been perfect according to his divine nature. He is a perfected high priest according to his human nature. He has been tempted. He is a human being who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So that, if you just quickly look at verse 11, perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. No perfection there. Verse 18, the law made nothing perfect. Nothing perfect there. But then in here in verse 28, in these last days God has provided who? A son who has been made perfect forever. Now we have perfection. Who, as our great high priest, is able to save us perfectly? Make, to, to, able to make us perfect and holy and blameless. Something the Levitical priesthood could never, ever do. So Jesus' priesthood far surpasses this old covenant priesthood. He is appointed by divine unchangeable oath. He is singular. He is one with no need of replacement or assistance from others. His term is unending and he will never step down. His priesthood provides salvation that is complete and comprehensive. His priesthood transcends earth into the heavens, into the very presence of God. His priesthood is effective on the basis of the sacrifice that he offered once for all. And he is not merely a human slave or servant. He is God's eternal son who, according to his human nature, has become a priest who has been perfected forever. So what do we take away from this? In conclusion, seven implications of Christ's priesthood. There are more than seven. We're only going to consider seven. First, the gravity and depth of sin is egregious. The gravity of our sin is egregious. Think how much animal blood was spilled in the Old Testament and yet perfected no one. Thousands of gallons were not enough to remove your guilt before God. If we do not think of Christ as priest, if we miss the priesthood element of our salvation, we will underestimate our sin. We need more than just a teacher. We do not merely need a life coach or a therapist or a trainer or even a prophet. We, 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 we need more than just merely a savior who dies for our sins. We need a Savior who rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, sends His Spirit to sanctify us, and then intercedes for us before God. How deep must the infection of sin be in us if that's what it takes for us to be saved? If you do not have a high and full view of Christ, you will not or you will underestimate how deep and devastating your sin is before a holy God. Continually, today, right now, this morning, we need our high priest to intercede for us because the depth of our sin is egregious. Second, the claim today of subsequent ongoing priests is egregious. The claim 
today of subsequent ongoing priests is egregious. After considering the exalted, all-surpassing priesthood of Christ, how offensive is it for someone to claim the role of priest today? How many men and women walk around today with the title priest? Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and he gave the law that appointed priests. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who, after making purifications for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he's still there right now. And you're going to claim to be a priest today? You're going to claim that people need to come through you to access God today? You have a heavenly high priest. You do not need someone else in order to have access to God. This is one of the glories of who Jesus is. You don't need, need, you don't need a saint, either present or past, to give you access to God. You do not need Mary, the mother of Jesus, to have access to God. Hebrews 7.26, God tells us we have a, a priest fit for us, suitable for us. He is more fit than any other being, human being who has ever lived. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners and he is exalted above the heavens. And then verse 25 tells us what? He always lives to make intercession for you if you draw near to God through him. Don't go through a human being. We can go through him. The claim of subsequent ongoing priests is egregious. It's, it's wrong. Third, more positively, third, you can be saved. You can be saved. No matter what you have done, no matter how far you have wandered, no matter how many lies you have believed, no matter how many lies you have told, no matter how unclean you are, don't insult Christ by claiming to be beyond his ability to save. In the words of John Bunyan, he is able to save thee. He is able, or though you suppose your condition to be the worst that ever a man was, he is able to save thee, though thy condition were ten times worse than it is. He is able to do far more abundantly than we asked or think. You can be saved. Turn away from sin and cling to Christ. Fourth, there's only one way to God. There's only one way to God. Jesus claims in John 14, 6 that no one comes to the Father except through him. And in, in Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to say to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. With the implication being to draw near to God on your own merits or to draw near to God on the merits of some other savior or some other priest or mediator is to draw near to a holy God in a state of unholiness and guilt and un cleanness. Jesus is the only way. Fifth, fifth, this should comfort us. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 6 warn us of the danger of false conversion. We are warned about having a false faith, an evil unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God, Hebrews 3.12, or tasting of the goodness of God, 
or sorry, tasting of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then falling away, Hebrews 6, 5 and 6. But for those who are truly in Christ, those currently clinging to Christ, they will never fall away. To claim that there, that you can fall away is to claim that there is a deficiency in Christ's priesthood. Christ is not a defective priest. He saves to the uttermost. He will not let you go. He knows your name and he continues to plead your personal, individual case before God in heaven. Sixth, you can pray. You can pray. Many people struggle to pray. Many people say, I don't know what to pray. We feel guilty when we think about how much we don't pray. We say things like, I don't think I pray very well. I don't pray well enough. Let this, let Hebrews 7 encourage you to persevere in prayer. None of us pray as well as we should. Can we improve? Yes. Should we try to improve? Yes. But if the hope of our prayers reaching up to heaven depends on us, none of our prayers will be heard, not one. But as Christians, we don't pray in our own name. We pray in Jesus' name. And when we say that, what we're saying is, in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, amen. Which means that all of our imperfect and and exhausted and awkward and fumbling prayers, they go up to heaven and they are heard through the lens of Christ's perfect high priesthood on our behalf. Pray not because you are some great prayer. Pray because Christ is your great high priest. You can pray. And seventh, you need more than merely a crucified Savior. That might sound alarming at first, but that is what Hebrews 7 is telling us. You need more than merely a crucified Savior. How Christ fully and finally saves us is more than just through a crucifixion. You need a crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. You don't just have, if you're a Christian, you don't just have a canceled record of debt. That, that's, that would be dealing with your past. You have one who continually pleads your case in heaven into the future forever. Who ensures that you will be faithful to the end. Who always, who always lives to make intercession for us. Verse 25, as Christians, our faith is hindered when we lack a full picture of who Christ is. Christ's priesthood is twofold and cling to all that he is. Cling to Christ and what he has done for you in the past, but also cling to what Christ is currently doing for you right now. It's amazing what happens when a third party steps in and reconciles us to God. Do you know Christ as your heavenly mediator? Do you know Christ as your high priest? What comfort we have. He always lives to make intercession for us. It continues to this day. What motivation to take actions of obedience, to pray, to kill sin, to love others and serve others. He always lives to make intercession for us. He is for you. 
as you stumble through, even when you stumble through the Christian life. What stimulus for rejoicing? God has sworn an oath and will not change his mind. He has appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. What we sang earlier and what we are going to sing one more time, Arise, my soul. This is a song calling on our souls to praise God. Arise, my soul. Arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. That is in the hands of your high priest in heaven who is for you. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. His wounds, they pour effectual prayers. His wounds are continual. Why? My kids ask me, why when Jesus rises from the dead, is there still wounds? If this is a glorified body, why does he still have the wounds? His wounds are his intercession. They're his, they're his prayers. They're his testimony of what he has done for us. They pour effectual prayers. His wounds strongly plead for us. Forgive him. Forgive her, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. We're going to keep singing that song. Father, all praise and blessing and honor and glory and power and might be to Christ. Our final prophet, priest, and King, your full and final revelation to us. The one who sits enthroned forever. The one who always lives to intercede for us forever. We do not hope in ourselves. We do not hope in our own ability to keep the law. We do not hope in fallen human beings, priests appointed in weakness, Our hope is in Christ alone, who has no need to make sacrifices daily, but who offered up himself once for all so that we can be saved, so we we can be forgiven and clean and have hope. In a world that is hopeless, we have hope. In a world that mourns, we have comfort. In a world that is lost, we are empowered to obediently follow you. And in a world that despairs, we rejoice. Father, help us press forward in your grace that we have because of Christ's intercession. And in that grace, we ask, would you lead us all the way home? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.